From the Gospel of Luke, no servant can serve two masters. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Good morning. By the age of 20, the average adult has seen over a million commercials. Let me, let me break that down for you. That's 347 days worth of commercials, or almost a year of that person's life, a year in 20, watching commercials. Between billboards and logos, flyers and commercials, the average person is exposed to over 4,000 ads per day. Now, don't start looking around for them. We don't, we don't, we don't do, we're not, NAS, we're not wearing NASCAR suits. But, you know, each of these ads that people are exposed to, every one of these advertisements is an attempt to tell you what you ought to do with the money that you possess, how you should be spending it. And often they appeal to you through the presentation of a lifestyle, right? You're not just buying a truck. You're built Ford tough. And so you're buying, you know, cowboy boots and get some, get some dirt on them, maybe some oil on your jeans, get a few horses, right? I mean, that's what you're buying. You're not buying a truck, you're buying a lifestyle. You're not buying a minivan, you are buying a premium Honda Odyssey with a built-in vacuum cleaner and doors that open, right? Like what you're buying is an orderly, clean household where your kids will behave and keep everything in the right condition, right? That's what you're, you're not buying products, you're buying a lifestyle. And so how should you spend money to create the ideal life? Well, there are quite literally millions of voices that have an opinion on that, aren't there? But which one should you listen to? Of all the millions of voices that are all speaking into this lifestyle that you should be creating, which one should you listen to? You might not be surprised to hear that God has something to say about money. Actually has quite a lot to say about it. I don't know who did this, but they went through Scripture and they counted up how many verses God used, um, how many times God talks about money in the Bible, how many verses it's in. 2,350 verses about money. It's significant. Jesus, when He was on earth, 15% of Everything Jesus talked about was about money, 15%. And you might think like, you know, okay, 15%, but think about all the other things that Jesus taught about. Loving your enemies, being good to your neighbors, eternal life, redemption, those sorts of things, kind of important topics. But he spent 15% of his time talking about money. And that shouldn't surprise us, and here's why. Money is a powerful force. It's a powerful force. And I know this because, and it somehow doesn't happen in this parish, this parish is, is wonderful, but in most places when you start to preach about money, you see everybody kind of, whoa, you draw back, right? I see you know, people get tense. They apologize to their friend who they brought to church for the first time. Like, this was not the right Sunday. Come back next week. They won't talk about this. I promise. You know, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable for people, but that's just because, that's only because it is so powerful. And it's so powerful, it's powerful enough to become a stand-in for God if we let it. So here's what God does. Just as no good parent 
is going to give their child a loaded gun or keys to a car or teach them to ha- or, or show them where the table saw is without giving them instructions, without teaching them how to use things that are powerful and dangerous. God gives us instructions about how to handle one of the most powerful things that we come in contact with. So Jesus, in this parable that we're going to be diving into today in Luke 16, He instructs us about our proper relationship to money and money's proper end. So I've got three points for today. Point one, the hazards of wealth. Point two, the management of God's estate. And point three, the lifestyle toward eternity. Y'all track me on that. Hazards of wealth, management of God's estate, and the lifestyle toward eternity. So let's dive in. The hazards of wealth. I was reading an article uh, earlier this week. In 1997, after 25 years of what Thomas Rossi had thought was a happy marriage, his wife Denise suddenly divorced him without giving him any real reason. He was despondent obvious, as you would be, and and two years later, he mistakenly receives a letter in the mail addressed to his now ex-wife. Catch this, from a company that pays funds to lottery winners. Surprise, 11 days before she filed for divorce, his wife found out that she had won the lottery. Ouch, right? I mean, that would hurt. But money can change things, and it can change people. And if you think this is an outlier or an extreme example, I found page after page of stories like this about lottery winners who crashed and burned, people with enormous windfalls that were subsequently shipwrecked. And you know the stories, right? You've heard these stats before. You know that 70% of lottery winners are penniless a year later. You know that 30% go on to declare bankruptcy. And this isn't a new phenomenon, by the way. There was another young man who had received an enormous sum of money. He threw off his family, he threw off his hometown, and he squandered it so recklessly that he ended up living in stables and feeding pigs. Now, fortunately, this this young man's father was gracious enough to receive him back home and restore his dignity, or so goes the parable that Jesus told right before launching into our parable for today. I think sometimes we forget that the prodigal son, as much as it is about God's love for us and welcoming us back in, is a a parable about money. And the Bible is replete with warnings, with admonitions and stories about the corrupting nature of wealth. I'm going to give you a few. You know these. Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, right, than for a rich man to enter heaven. Proverbs, a warning that ties into our uh, parable of the prodigal son. An inheritance gained hastily in the beginning will not be a blessing at the end. Or one that comes up in our lectionary right around the corner, the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. In addition to adding these these warnings in the Bible, I'm sure that you could add your own stories. I know some of them, stories, who, stories of children who reduced the dignity and worth of their own parents to that of a post-dated check. Why is that? What makes money so powerful? 
Well, Jesus tells us in our text for this morning, money, mammon, can set itself up as a rival god. So I want you to think with me, what are the promises that an abundance of wealth offers us? Think about it. Happiness, security, a sense of worth. What about redemption? A way to make up for your own flaws or past sins. And money gives you all these promises by circumventing God, by taking the sovereignty, the power, the control, the authority that is rightfully God's and putting it into our hands. Money is the best tool that we can think of to become little g-gods, isn't it? Shaping our own, creating our own designer lives, our own little kingdoms. Promising us the ability to remake at least our own personal worlds into our image. The problem is that these promises are our illusion. Mammon's great lie. Money, security. Money can help you build, you know, gated homes, and that's wonderful. But it doesn't give you eternal life. It's not going to stop you from getting hit by a bus. Money can't provide lasting happiness. We've actually done studies on this, and we know a couple things. We know, first of all, that within a year, even lottery winners return to their baseline levels of happiness. We also know that once people have their basic needs met, once people are not worried about what they're going to eat or worried about having a roof over their heads, that any, and we're talking, you know, maybe twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 for a household, we know that once that level is reached, that any additional wealth has bare incremental effects on a person's measured happiness. It, I mean, it, it's negligible. As for a sense of worth, and by the way, if you don't believe me, go outside of the United States to a community that has nothing and tell me that people in the United States are happier than they are, by and large. You can't do it. And as for a sense of worth, Money can have the very strange effect of reducing the dignity afforded to us by God, catch this, to numbers in a bank account. And most importantly, money, no matter how charitable we are with it, can't redeem us, wealth can't save us. But that doesn't stop us from making sacrifices at the altar of mammon, sacrificing the needs of others, be they material needs of the less fortunate, or the relational needs of our own family members in pursuit of the illusory power and control that we believe that money affords us. And I say it's illusory because the great trick of any vice, greed included, is that we are fooled into thinking we are masters when we are only becoming more enslaved. I have known more than a few people who have become utterly possessed by their possessions and who spent their lives building their own kingdoms out of sand when the kingdom of God was right before them. So how do we safeguard ourselves against these potential pitfalls? Right? Scripture doesn't say that money is bad. It doesn't say it's evil. It says it's dangerous. It's hazardous. So how do we, how do we safeguard ourselves against these potential pitfalls? Well, it brings us to our second point, the management of God's estate. Let's look at our text. Jesus, in Jesus' parable, we are introduced to a household manager, an oikonomos. And, and, and what an oikonomos was is they were in charge of an enormous estate. In addition to running the servants and making sure the necessary tasks were accomplished, right, like everybody's doing what they need to do, the estate's maintained, they also served as the master's treasurer and head of wealth management. Everything ran through them. 
And it put this person, this dishonest manager, in the perfect position, right, to set himself up for the future after he's fired for mismanaging the estate, which I'm not going to go there. But I will say that the manager starts writing off, in order to set himself up for the future, he starts writing off enormous sums of money. He starts writing off enormous sums after his master's accounts receivable. Sums that were equivalent to anywhere between a two-year and ten-year salary, making friends for himself. And we read this, and we're like, okay, we kind of get where this is going so far. But then it takes a twist, and it was a plot twist that is as shocking to us as we read it today as it would be to the first people who heard it. The plot twist is that the master responds by commending the manager for his shrewdness. That bring up any question marks for anybody else? That's a little, a little strange, right? What do you, what do you, he, he ripped you off. What are you doing? Well, there's a distinction to be made. The master doesn't commend him for his dishonesty. He commends him for his shrewdness. And here's, here's the heart of the whole text. The manager, knowing that his time is short, that his judgment day was approaching, he prepared himself by giving away that which was not his to begin with and that which he could not take with him so that he would be ready for the life to come. Let me say that again. He gave away that which was not his to begin with and that which he could not take with him to prepare for the life to come. And then Jesus goes on and he laments that his disciples, what he calls the children of light, and by extension us, do not do the same. We are not so shrewd. You know, when Amy and I first got married, we signed up, um, and this is, this is I mean, almost 10 years ago now, um, we, we signed up for a Christian finance class hosted by our church. I was the spender, she was the saver, and one of us thought that this class would be a good idea for us to get on the same page. I'll let you guess which one made the plans for that. And she was right. Um, and, and, it, and it was a good class, and it was good for us, but it was a hard class, especially for me. There were a lot of hard lessons that I had to learn. Lesson number one, and this one hit me like a two-by-four. You don't own anything. I mean, think about that. You don't own anything. You start thinking about that. Well, of course I do, right? I write my initials on the tags of my shirts. Like, who, who's, who, are those, who do those belong to? You know, it's, my, it's my, my truck. Like, I picked that sucker out. I love that thing. It's my, it's my, you just start thinking about my, 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 like all the stuff that we think that we own. But he's like, no, you don't, you don't own anything. You don't own your house, you don't own your car, you don't even own your kids. As the psalmist writes, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Is there anything outside of that description? Let me ask you. It's all God's. And then I went on to learn, and and it hurt, Uh, I went on to learn that God created all things and He never revoked His ownership. God created all things, and He never transferred ownership over to us. Instead, and this is something that you and I and every person has in common, from Adam and Eve in the garden all the way down to you and I right now in this church, God has made us stewards of His possessions. What was Adam's first job? Caretaker of the garden, wasn't it? 
God gave him dominion under him. He was never, Adam was never the king. He was the vice regent. We, every single person in this room and on this planet that has ever lived, are stewards. We all have the same fundamental occupation. Now, we go about that differently, right? We have different ways of being God, stewards of God's creation, but we all have the same job. We're all oikonomos. We're all managers of his household. And then the class drove this point home, and it sounds like a cheesy exercise, but I can tell you, when I put it into practice, it is, it is unbelievably helpful for me. Had us switch from using the possessive pronoun my, as in my car, my money, to the Lord's. Simple switch. Change some possessive pronouns around. The Lord's car, the Lord's house, the Lord's kids, the Lord's garage, the Lord's whatever, table saw. And it's amazing how freeing it is to make this one simple change. You know, when you do that, when you can say that with a genuine heart, it loosens the, the bonds of possession and it safeguards us from the hazards of wealth. It's a small change. Now, I'll admit this was a hard lesson at first. After all, why shouldn't I own that for which I worked so hard and sacrificed for? Why shouldn't it be mine? Well, God anticipated our struggle way back in Deuteronomy as he's saving the Israelites from being slaves and teaching them how to live on their own two feet. This is what he warns them. God says this. It's the same warning for us. Beware, says the Lord, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. Not only our abilities, our opportunities, our personalities, by the way, your personality traits, things that you can do almost nothing about, are, are strong predictors of future success, so give God credit for that. If you're conscientious and you work hard, that's not everybody. That's one of the big five personality traits. If you're intelligent, that's the strongest predictor of success. That's not something you did. All of our abilities, our opportunities, even our lives are given to us by God, the breath that is in our lungs. And our efforts were never meant for us to build rival kingdoms to God's that are lost to time, but to participate in the building up of His eternal kingdom. And I don't want us to miss this. Our lives aren't about building up rival kingdoms. It's about participating in the one kingdom of which we are all a part, which brings us to our final point, the lifestyle toward eternity. There are millions of voices competing for the money that we possess, promising to be a sound investment, promising that with the lifestyle that they offer us, our lives will be made complete. But there's only one voice that matters, only one voice that knows the end for which we are made and has the right to determine the investment. And the direction that he gave his disciples is this, invest in people who you know will be waiting for you in eternity. Invest in people who you know will be waiting for you in eternity. Invest for the sake of others that they may know Jesus, even as they are fully known, that they too may share in the joy of God's eternal kingdom. Just last week we had two baptisms. And Jerry, I'm calling you out. Um, you don't have to stand up again. You did a great job last week. But Jerry came up and he shared his testimony. I don't know if you, if you caught that. If you don't, I'd, rec I'd, I'd certainly recommend you go back and take a look at that. And I'm, I'm sitting over here at the Prairie Dew, and as he's, as he's sharing this, 
all I could think was, we're brothers now. And I, I, you know, I don't just mean now. Like, I, I mean from now through eternity. Like, that's it. You know, I might get my time with you at coffee hour. I might get my time with you, um, you know, when you invite me onto your boat as you promised in the fall. Um, <laughs> I don't forget. But the reality is, Jerry, like, like we're going to be in an eternal kingdom together. Like, that's it. And you start to think about that. Like, what price do you put on Jerry and his life with Christ? What price do you put on anybody's life walking with Jesus for eternity? What's the value of that? The value of eternal life, of eternal friendship, of bringing someone before the Lord? $200? $2,000? $2,000,000? What number do you give to that? I mean, it's an absurd question on the face of it. And frankly, it's so humbling that God would use what little we possess to do so many incredible things. If we're stewards and God invites us to have hands through which he passes his funds and we get to have some small part in the participation of building his kingdom, do you understand how humbling that is? That he would give us a role in the work that he's doing. I mean, it's all his anyway, right? One of the things we say at the 8 o'clock and... and It actually comes from David. David wrote this. He said, you know, all things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee. It's all his anyway, but he invites us to be a part of the process, and he invites us to participate in the greatest endeavor offered to mankind, the redemption of souls. And if we've lost sight of that, if we've become ensnared by our possessions and pretensions, I hope this text for us this morning is a time for us to be reoriented to our first and highest calling as stewards, appointed by the Lord for His purposes, because that is something that we all share in whatever capacity God has given us and the places that He has placed us. We're all stewards. That job hasn't gone away. We're invited to work for something greater than anything else that you could possibly come up with. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are gracious to us beyond measure. You ask nothing of us but that which is already yours, and yet you offer us freedom and the joy of participation in your saving work. I pray that you would so direct and dispose our hearts that we, being humbled by your great goodness, would order our lives around your high calling and that you would multiply our paltry offerings for the glory of your kingdom. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.